0: We're going to be spending our time together in Isaiah 48 and the first half of Isaiah 49. And it may be worth mentioning before we start to read that in Isaiah 48 and 49, God's people are referred to kind of interchangeably as Jacob and as Judah and as Israel. And I tell you that now so you're not completely flummoxed by it when we come to all these different names for the same group of people. Um, try not to be thrown by it too much, um, it's speaking to God's people. So with that in mind, let's read together, starting at verse 1 of chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah. Who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. But not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them. And they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate. And your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, My idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, before today you have never heard them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You've never heard, you've never known. From of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger, for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arms shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you'd paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favour I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, I will keep you. And give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, to say to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water, he will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sain. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask the Lord for his help before we study his word together. Let me pray. The psalmist writes, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. We ask this evening, Lord, that as we study Isaiah together, we would understand and we would experience the real sweetness that comes only through hearing you speak. We ask these things for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Well, it's an odd part of life that bad news for one person can sometimes be good news for somebody else Think of the principal performer in the West End show, the the, the lead role, who gets ill on the day of the big performance. It's devastating news for them, of course. They can't do the show anymore. But what's bad news for the principal is good news for the understudy. They get to fill in. It's their chance to shine. Bad news for one person, but good news for someone else. I'll give another more serious example, next Sunday we've been hearing is Remembrance Sunday. Think back for a moment to the end of World War II. The announcement that war was over, that announcement was bad news for German and Japanese forces. They'd lost. But that same piece of news that war was over was good news for other people, for allied forces and for others around the world. And it was especially good news for many prisoners of war in camps scattered across Europe and the Pacific. Because for them, the defeat of their opponents meant not just victory, because it wasn't just the defeat of their opponents, it was the defeat of their captors. And so the end of the war brought freedom, it brought the chance to go home. And actually that second example is pretty close as a parallel to what we're going to be thinking about together this evening. If you're just joining us for the first time this evening we've been working our way through the prophecy of Isaiah this past term during Sunday evenings. And the big picture in Isaiah is that the capital city of God's people, Jerusalem, is a moral, a moral and spiritual mess. It's full of corruption and greed. And hypocrisy, and more seriously still, God's people have rejected their God, and so God promised that because of His people's continued, repeated rejection of Him, He was going to judge them. He was going to let a global superpower of the day, a, an empire called Babylon, plunder Jerusalem, plunder the capital of His God's, of God's people. The Babylonians will take God's people back with them to Babylon and hold them captive. And so Isaiah is writing the words that we've been studying over these past few weeks, before all of that had happened, before they've all been carted off into captivity. He's telling God's people all they need to know whilst they're in captivity in Babylon. That's the big picture of where we find ourselves in Isaiah. And last Sunday evening, if you were here with us, you might remember that we read some really bad news for Babylon. Babylon. God said this to Babylon, chapter 47 and verse 11. God said this, Ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you shall know nothing. Babylon are going to be destroyed, which is bad news for Babylon. We thought all about that last week. But what was bad news for Babylon, the captors, is good news for God's people, the captives. It's like the announcement that war is over to a group of POWs. God's people are going to be free. They can go home, back to Jerusalem. That's the context that we read, chapter 48. Read with me, verse 20. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant, Jacob. Babylon are going to be destroyed, and God's people are going to be free. They can go home again to Jerusalem. And so all the problems we've been reading about for the past few weeks are solved. All is well with the world again. Or is it? See, there's a surprise in chapter 48 of Isaiah. The destruction of Babylon is good news for God's people. They will be free to make the journey back home to Jerusalem. And it is worth celebrating for God's people. But even though all of that stuff is true, it isn't the full picture. All is not well with the world for God's people. I wonder if you noticed that as we read through chapter 48 a few minutes ago. Look down just as an example to verse 9 with me. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Now that's God speaking to his own people on the other side of Babylon, then read again, verse 18. God again is speaking to his own people. Verse 18, oh, that you'd paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. But, verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. As we read through chapter 48, there isn't a tone of celebration and rejoicing, there's solemnity, there's regret even anger. And it's worth taking some time to ask ourselves why, because in, this, in the context of what we've been thinking about over the past few weeks, it doesn't really make much sense. Babylon are the bad guys. Babylon are the only thing standing between God's people and a glorious return home. So if Babylon's going to be destroyed, why aren't they popping champagne corks in Isaiah 48? That's the big question, and that's what we're going to consider for a few minutes. We're going to do that under the second heading on your service sheet. You were hopefully handed one of those on your way in this evening. It might be helpful to have that in front of you. Judah's Persistent Problem and Its Consequences. Now you may or may not know that Prince Charles turns 70 years old, not this coming week, but the following week there's going to be some events, some TV programs about him, I'm assured. And I recently read an article about his life, which told me his full name and title. Now I realize that sounds like a bit of a dull conversation opener, and I also realize that none of you are now going to be inviting me to any parties anytime soon. But before you write me off, let me read it for you. This is Prince Charles' full name and title. His Royal Highness, Prince Charles Philip, Arthur George, Prince of Wales, Knight of the Garter, Knight of the Thistle, Knight Grand Cross of the Order of Bath, Order of Merit, Knight of the Order of Australia, Companion of the Queen's Service Order, Privy Councillor, aide-de-camp, Earl of Chester, Duke of Cornwall, Duke of Rothsey, Earl of Carrick, Baron of Renfrew, Lord of the Isles, and Prince and Great Steward of Scotland. Whew. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? It's a pretty lengthy title. But each part of it tells us something different about him, doesn't it? it? Tells us the various orders that he is. He is a knight of the various dukedoms and earldoms he has. Well, I wonder if you noticed at the beginning of our reading this evening that we read a pretty lengthy title. Read verse 1 of chapter 48 with me. Read this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, who are, came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. Verse 2, they call themselves after the holy city and they stay themselves on the God of Israel. Now the odd thing or the confusing thing about this address is not just that it's quite a lengthy address. But it's that unlike Prince Charles, each of these titles establishes pretty much the same thing. And it's a pretty simple thing. All of these various titles just tell us that this prophecy is addressed to God's people. Now we might allow it just to wash over as it almost seems unnecessary for Isaiah to repeat himself so many times. It's a waste of words, isn't it? But it's actually very deliberate. And in the context of this chapter, it's really important. And we see why at the end of verse 1. This is to God's people, he says, five times over, but not in truth or right. There is a disconnect between who God's people should be, who they claim to be, even who they think they are, and who they really are. And verse one's a really helpful gateway into what's going on in chapter 48 because we see through the rest of the chapter what that disconnect looked like. So look down with me at verse five. God, again, is addressing his own people. I declared them, I declared these things to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. What's going on there? Well, God's saying that he's had to establish a pattern of prophesying things and then fulfilling those prophecies. And the reason he's had to establish that pattern is that otherwise, God's own people are going to look at those events, whatever the events are, and they're going to attribute them not to God, but to one of their idols, to the statue or the metal image that they worship. And notice this isn't a historical problem for God's people. He's not speaking in past tense. Even now, there's a flippancy in how God's people treat God. Read on, verse 6 and 7. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard them, lest you say, Behold, I knew them. In verses 1 to 11 of Isaiah 48, we see a consistent pattern of God's people sidelining God, paying more attention to idols, to to metal images, wooden images, than to the God they claim to belong to. And not only were they doing that, the problem didn't end there. We read the verse a moment or two ago. Verse eighteen God says this Oh that you had paid attention to my commandments If only says God If only you hadn't ignored me Ignored what I told you about myself ignored what I told you about how to live and to flourish and so we start to see a building picture of why chapter forty eight of Isaiah is not a big jamboree at the end of a war. It's because God's people were continuing to reject their God. Now that's pretty shocking. Shocking for two reasons. Firstly, if you were here last week, you'll remember that part of God's problem with Babylon was this very thing. It was idolatry. It was having a puffed up view of themselves. That's what had prompted God to promise to destroy them. But chapter 48 isn't addressed to Babylon. This is addressed to the house of Jacob. They are called by the name of Israel. They came from the waters of Judah. They swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. They call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. They have every reason to know better than Babylon. And yet they have the same problem as Babylon. That's the first reason it's shocking. This is the same problem that Babylon had. But this is God's people. And secondly, it's shocking because, well, this isn't a new thing for Judah. Remember why they were going to be taken into captivity in Babylon in the first place? The scene that we see painted elsewhere or earlier in Isaiah of Jerusalem and what it was like in all its pomp was a mess. They, they, God's people claimed to love and to follow God, but at the same time, they were worshipping idols, ignoring God's commandments, belittling God, treating each other really poorly. So, Babylon had been in God's act of judgment on his own people. And yet, even here, on the far side of Babylon, even after they've seen quite how seriously God takes their rejection of him, they still won't listen. Babylon's destruction should be good news for God's people. It is good news for God's people. But it does not spell an end to Judah's problems. Because Babylon never really was Judah's biggest problem. Do you see that? Judah's real, persistent problem was that they rejected their God. Now, all of that is meant to be shocking. But we find out that God's response in Isaiah 48 to Judah's persistent rejection of him, even post-Babylon, isn't just shock. It's anger. Read verse 9 with me again. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. God is having to defer his anger to restrain it and if he wasn't restraining it he would cut his own people off altogether. Then read on to verse 18. We read on Oh that you had paid attention to my commandments then your peace would have been like a river your offspring like the waves of the sea your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains and here's the kicker their names would never have been, what? Cut off or destroyed from before me. If only you'd paid attention to me, says God. You'd never have been cut off or destroyed from before me. And the very strong inference in Isaiah 48 is because they haven't paid attention. They didn't pay attention. They still aren't paying attention. That they should be cut off. So, Judah's real problem is that they have stubbornly, persistently rejected God. And the right consequence of that rejection is that God should be angry. What they deserve is to be cut off from Him. Now, when we come to study the Bible together, it's important for us always to ask ourselves so what? What does any of that mean for me today? Otherwise, we turn into the realm of historical lecture. <clears throat> and there's a line of thought that says Isaiah 48 is written to address God's people in Isaiah's time, to address their weakness and their folly and their rejection of God. And so the clearest line of application is to God's people now, to the church. And I'm sure that most of us won't have to think too hard to find examples of brokenness in churches we know or we've been part of or we've seen But actually, the clearest application of Isaiah, particularly of Isaiah 48, is not just to the church, it's to humanity as a whole. Judah's problem is that they reject God time and time and time again. No matter how much they know about him, no matter how kind he's been to them, they reject him. And a consistent thread that runs through the whole Bible is that that is exactly what people do every single day of our lives. We ignore God and what he tells us about himself. We worship created stuff rather than our creator. We even attribute the good things that he does in the world and in our own lives to anyone and anything else, even to luck rather than to God. See, Judah's persistent problem is our persistent problem, not just Chalmers Church Edinburgh, but rank-and-file humanity. And just as we share the same persistent problem as Judah, rejecting God, the thread running through the Bible also tells us that the consequence of that rejection will be the same for us as it should have been for Judah. Alienation. Separation. Being cut off from God, not just now, but for all eternity. Now, that is really sobering stuff. And I'm acutely conscious that it may be the first time that anyone's ever said that to some of you. And you may well be bridling against me for saying it. But that is the Bible's, that's God's diagnosis of humanity. It's a thread that runs all the way through the Bible. And in Isaiah 48, Judah demonstrates so clearly that people, even the most seemingly upright religious people who know all there is to know or all they need to know about God, are serial God rejectors. But if we can see that, if we understand why that might be the case, What do we do? What are we meant to do to fix the problem? If that's the problem with humanity, if that's each of our problems sat in Chammer's building this evening, what do we do? Because it's all very well me standing here telling you that you're not right with God, but what can you actually do about it? We'll have a scan through chapter 48 for a second and look for what God tells Judah to do to fix the problem in Isaiah 48. See if you can find it. If the problem in verses 1 to 11 is idolatry, we might expect God to tell them, stop your idolatry. Is that enough to put a halt to things? Or if the problem in verses 18 and 19 is ignoring God's commandments, we might expect God to tell them, well, stop ignoring my commandments, start doing what I tell you to do, and then all will be well. Will that do the trick? Well, I wonder if you notice as you read through that in Isaiah 48, we aren't actually given a solution to the problem. God doesn't offer Judah the chance to make amends, to get their act together, start behaving like they ought to. He's already done that countless times, but he doesn't offer them that chance in Isaiah 48. Judah are hopeless to fix the problem themselves. But wonderfully, wonderfully, When we move on to Isaiah 49, we see that God himself provides the solution. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time together thinking about this evening. God's servant, the secret weapon. So as we move on to Isaiah 49, I wonder if you noticed that in verse 1, the intended audience changes a bit. He's no longer speaking to Judah, to God's people. Instead, he addresses coastlands or you peoples from afar. It's basically a a rough paraphrase would be, listen up, everyone. It's a message to the world. (laughs) So it's pretty clear who's being addressed. But who is doing the addressing? Who is speaking in Isaiah 49? Because that's a bit less clear. Look with me at verse 3. And he, that's God, said to me, that's the person speaking, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So the person doing the addressing is God's servant, and God's servant is Israel. That seems clear enough. But as we read on, things get a bit less clear. So in verse 6, for example, this servant part of his job description is that he will bring back the preserved of Israel. Israel are spoken about as though they're separate to the servant so it wouldn't really make sense if the servant is Israel. It's a little bit confusing, isn't it? Who is doing the speaking in Isaiah 49? Who is God's servant? Well the answer is that we aren't explicitly told We know that it's God's servant. We know that he's closely linked to God's people somehow, but we aren't given a name. But what we are given is a lot of information about the servant's job description. Did you notice that? Look with me, verse two. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. God's servant is like a polished arrow hidden in God's quiver. It's like a a sharp sword hidden in the shadow of God's hand. The servant is God's secret weapon. And what does God use this secret weapon for? Well, in Isaiah 49, God's secret weapon carries out a very specific purpose. Read with me, verse 5. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back. To bring Jacob back where? To, to Jerusalem? No, to bring Jacob back to him. And that Israel might be gathered to him. God's servant, his secret weapon, will gather God's people back to himself. Let me say that again. God's secret weapon, his servant, will gather God's people back to himself. That's the servant's job description in Isaiah 49. And we see that enacted later on in the chapter. From verse 8 onwards, we read the description of a journey We've seen similar descriptions already in Isaiah of the journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Captives are being liberated, verse 9, allowing them to make their way back home. But notice in Isaiah 49, the people don't walk back alone. Verse 10, he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water he will guide them. God's servant, his secret weapon, is gathering God's people back to himself. Now again, take a step back. Why is any of that important at all? Why should you bother paying attention? What does it mean to any of us? Well, remember what we've just been thinking about for the past few minutes. In Isaiah 48, what was God's people's big problem, their real problem? It was their persistent rejection of God. And the consequence of that was that they would be cut, cut off, separated. But in Isaiah 49, we read that God's servant has a very specific purpose. He will bring his people back. Not just back to Jerusalem, but back to himself. From the separation they deserve to being brought back to God, from being cut off from him to being in relationship with him. Now we've already said this isn't just Judah's problem, but it's humanity's problem. And we see that even in our verses in chapter 49. Read verse 6. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God's servant won't just bring Judah back to himself. He'll bring people from all over the world, even somewhere like Scotland. Instead of being cut off from God, as should happen, God promises a servant who will gather rebellious humanity, not just his own people, rebellious humanity, back to himself. Now, all of that might sound wonderful. You might be able to get the flow of logic from Isaiah 48 to Isaiah 49. But again, we have to ask ourselves whether this has any relevance to us at all. Because it might sound quite abstract at the moment. We're talking about journeys from Babylon to Jerusalem, what, 600 years BC. If I am a God-rejector, if Isaiah 48 is right, if I am a God-rejector, and if because of that... God should cut me off. God should be angry with me. What can I do about it? Well, Robin read a couple of verses earlier in our service, and I'm going to read just two of those again. They're verses from the New Testament. And I want you to have a think about whether they ring any bells. The Apostle Paul writes this to a group of Christians. He says, And you, who once were alienated, or separated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds he as jesus has now reconciled or brought back gathered in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him Can you see why I said a few minutes ago this is a thread that runs through the whole Bible? Humanity shares Judah's biggest problem. We are all God rejectors, And the result of that says Isaiah and says Paul was alienation, separation from God. Yet, say both Isaiah and Paul and the full canon of scripture, there is a way to be brought back to God, to be reconciled to him, made right with him. How? Well, says Isaiah 49, and Colossians speaks Paul, through the work of God's servant, and through the work of God's servant alone. Who is that servant, says Paul, is Jesus. Now, as we draw towards a close, let's consider how to respond to what we've been thinking about together this evening. Let me speak for a moment to those of us who... Perhaps here interested in Christian things, maybe not even interested, just been dragged in here by a friend or a relative who wouldn't describe themselves as being Christians. The Bible's diagnosis of each of us as humanity is that we reject God every day of our lives. And that's the bottom line. That was Judah's biggest problem time and time and time again. And we read that coming up all the way through the Old Testament. And it's your biggest problem too, It might not be a felt problem. It might not be something that you're conscious of or that you feel particularly burdened by, but it is a real, real problem. And one day, all who have rejected him, who have ignored him, who have sidelined him, who have attributed his goodness to other things, to ourselves, all who have done that will be separated from him, will be cut off, from our creator, the source of all good and love and joy for all eternity. That is a huge problem for Judah. One that Babylon's destruction wasn't going to solve. And it's a huge problem for us too. But if you feel the weight of it, what do you do? Where do you turn? Most of us turn to deeds, to doing stuff, to trying to serve God, please God. But Isaiah 48 and 49 shows us that the only way to go from being cut off to being near to, from being alienated to being reconciled and in relationship with is God's secret weapon and the work of his servant, the Lord Jesus. Now we'll see more fully over the coming weeks exactly how Jesus, and particularly Jesus, work on the cross ends that separation. But what's really clear in Isaiah 48 and 49 is that his servant is the only one who can fix our biggest problem and bring us back to him. We have to, have to, have to rely on the work of Jesus. So my question for you this evening is whether you will acknowledge that you have a problem with God, that you reject him, turning your back on him like a child from a loving father. And if so, will you ask him that instead of cutting you off, that through the work of his servant Jesus, he will bring you back, gather you to himself, so that you won't get what you deserve, but instead you'll get God, now and forever, the most wonderful thing. Now perhaps you're here this evening and you would describe yourself as a Christian and if that is the case then I want to ask you a rather bold question is there anything in your life other than the work of God's servant that you think will make you okay with God let me ask that again is there anything in your life other than the work of God's servant that you think will make you okay with God Isaiah 48 makes a big deal of the fact that God's people identified themselves with God. They call themselves after the holy city. They stay themselves in the God of Israel. Religious pedigree is their exception clause. And we might be similar. I'm okay with God because I'm a fourth generation Christian. I'm a Bible believing Christian, an evangelical Christian, a committed Christian maybe religious pedigree, or it may be your willingness to serve him and work for him. Or even your morality. Unlike God's people in Isaiah, you might pride yourself on following God's commandments. But Isaiah 48 shows us that our real problem is too persistent, too multifaceted, too deep-rooted for any of that stuff to bring us back to God and deal with our separation problem. Each of us reject God and choose self-rule every day of our lives and in multiple ways. And we deserve to be cut off from his goodness. But the only one who can solve our separation problem is God's servant, the Lord Jesus. Now that is wonderful news and it is liberating news. And so Chalmers Church, let's commit ourselves to looking to relying on, treasuring above anything else, the servant's work on our behalf, treasuring his cross instead of our weak and feeble efforts to gather ourselves back to the Lord. That's one application. And the final application and a brief one that I'll close with comes from the end of our section this evening. Read with me briefly verse 13 of chapter 48. This is after we've read about the work of the servant, bringing both God's people and the coastlands back to God. Verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. If you're a Christian this evening, the just and right consequence of our biggest problem has been dealt with. So rejoice. Rejoice with thanksgiving to the one who dealt with it. To God and his wonderful servant be the glory. Great things they have done. Let's pray together. Lord God, we confess before you this evening that we are serial God rejectors. Even those of us who take your name on our lips so often choose self-rule rather than submitting to your wonderful wonderful rule over our lives. And we acknowledge that you would be right to reject us for that, to cut us off from your goodness, and from your love. But we thank you that in your wonderful grace, you sent your servant, this secret weapon, the Lord Jesus, to deal with our separation problem and bring us back to you. Lord, we ask this evening, perhaps, for the first time that someone might trust in the work of your servant on their behalf and find joy and peace with you now, And an eternity not cut off or separated from you, but in wonderful, wonderful relationship with the God of all things. And for those of us who have already done so, help us to rely on your servant's work daily as the only way, the only way we can be brought back, and to rejoice in the wonderful news that is. Lord, we ask these things for our joy. And for your glory, I may do so in the name of your servant, our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen.